Thank you for listening to this message from Southridge Community Church, located in Clinton, New Jersey. We hope God speaks to you through this message today and that you find new ways to apply His Word to your life. Additional messages and more information can be found on southridgecc.org. So let's get started. So as Nathan said, this message is a long time coming. Uh, I started thinking about this message at Christmas time. And right around that time, I was having some conversations, well, a conversation with my daughters. And they were talking about, remember when we were children and what it felt like at Christmas time. You remember when you were a child at Christmas time? Like how magical it felt? How the, it felt so wonder-filled? And uh, the cool thing is now... Um, if you if you guys have know my family, you've seen them around, you know that I actually have, uh, my wife and I have four older daughters that are teens and adults, and then we actually have like um, like 10 years, and then we actually have like a, a son who's almost five. <laughs> so, you know, we have like a surprise blessing from God. And so what's cool about that, a lot of things are, a lot of things are cool about that, but one thing that's cool about that is uh, those who are teens, my daughters who are teens and young adults are now actually not only remembering um, those feelings of magic and wonder at Christmas time and those feelings that they felt as children, but they're actually seeing their younger brother experience that at his age too. Um, so that's just so, so awesome. Um, do you remember like just how wonder filled, like everything about seeing Christmas through the eyes of a child was? Um, the songs and the gift giving and the candle lighting and um, Everything associated, remember hearing the story of the angel announcing peace on earth, goodwill to men. And you actually believed that it could come true. You actually believed that uh, through a child's eyes, that there, there could actually come a day when this world would be a world of life, joy, justice, and harmony, rather than a world of violence, corruption, ethnic division, disaster, and disease. But as you and I get older, we sort of lose that wonder of a child, that wonder through, through which we kind of see the world that's kind of highlighted at Christmas time. And uh, we start to get scared and sad and cynical. We see generation after generation, culture after culture, political administration after political administration, falling into the same selfish patterns and failed aspirations. We see huge hopes and promises, but we see little progress that our world will actually be reclaimed and redeemed. This summer, I read a book by G.K. Chesterton called Orthodoxy, a, a book that was written at the turn of the century, actually 1908, this book, Orthodoxy, was written. And it was kind of almost a treasure hunt because it was a tough read. But as I sort of read through it, it was sorting through some very tough language. I underlined something on every couple of pages because there was just such rich treasures in Orthodoxy. One of the things that Chesterton was talking about was seeing life through the eyes of a child. And this conversation with my daughters where they were talking about seeing life through the eyes of a child reminded me of my reading of Chesterton. And he was talking about, look, um, here was my journey to believing that Christianity was true, that of all the various worldviews, like Christianity best represented the truth. And he talked about sort of before he even had words, before he even could put language into words, what did he sense in his bones about the world? And this is what he writes. 
He said, before I could write and before I could think, I felt in my bones that the world may be a miracle with supernatural explanation. I came to feel as if magic must have a meaning and meaning must have someone to mean it. There was something personal in the world as in a work of art. I thought that this I thought this purpose beautiful in its old design. We owed obedience to whatever made us. And in some way, all good was a remnant to be stored and held sacred out of some primordial ruin. Man had saved his good as Robinson Crusoe saved his goods. He had saved them from a wreck. So he says this, he says, look, he says before he was even old enough to put it into words, he sensed in his bones that the world was filled with wonder, like children experience at Christmas time. He sensed that that the world was purposefully designed and as a world that was purposefully designed, it has a purposeful designer. He also felt in his bones that this world is not what it ought to be. He felt that somehow the good and the sacred and the holy, the glorious in this world had been, um, that had been somehow corrupted and needed to be reclaimed, but that somehow in the midst of this fallenness, the, the good in the world was being redeemed and reclaimed. And then with a note of sadness, Chesterton says this, he says, all this I felt, but the age in which I lived gave me, gave me no encouragement to feel it. He says, the society that I lived in gave me a narrative that didn't make sense of or help to accomplish this vision, which I sensed in my bones was true. That somehow there is a purposeful designer. And even though the world is fallen, he's reclaiming the good and redeeming the good in his world. Now, much like Chesterton, you and I sense that this world is not what it ought to be. We, we have a longing, sometimes a wordless longing, a sense of loss deep within our bones, that the world should be more beautiful, that the world should be more glorious. The world has more potential than we're seeing. The world should be whole. We should not be experiencing the brokenness and the profaning of the holy and glorious that we see all around us. That the world is a place that's charged with the grandeur of God, but it's, it's fallen from its original goodness and it has fallen far short of reaching its potential. Like Chesterton, we find ourselves in a society that sets up human beings as the top authority Chesterton goes on to explain that the older that he got, the more disenfranchised he got with the solutions that his society was proposing. That his society was saying, human beings are the top of the pyramid. They are like the, um, the authority by which this world is set right. It's human programs and human politics that set this world right, that reclaim the good, that redeem the good in the world. And like Chesterton, you and I find ourselves in a situation where we are being given that narrative. We're being given the narrative that it's through human programs and politics, ultimately, that creation will be what it's meant to be, that the good will be reclaimed and redeemed. But the more each of us lives our lives, the more we know that that's not true. The more each of us read history, the more we observe the human condition, the more we recognize that human programs and politics do not and cannot ultimately mend what's broken. 
The more we live our lives, the more we read history, the more we experience the human condition, we recognize that human programs and human politics do not and cannot ultimately bring about the kind of world that we sense in our bones ought to be. Humanity's self-improvement plan is a bust. But this is not a message about complaining this morning. This is a message of hope. The passage that we're going to look at this morning gives us a narrative that's so much more hopeful than the story that we are given by society. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is one that expresses in poetry God's vision for his future, a hopeful, thriving future for his people and his world. As Nathan said, we are in a message series called He Will Be Called. We're in the last week of that message series. Um, We have focused so far over the last six weeks or so on three different names that Jesus was called by the prophet Isaiah 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. This morning, we're actually gonna look at the fourth name. So far, we've looked at wonderful counselor, everlasting father, mighty God, and this morning, we'll zoom in on Prince of Peace. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to look at verses 1 to 7, which is kind of like our anchor passage for this series. Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Uh, The passage is written to the people of Judah, which is like the southern part of Israel. And it was a time of great distress and division. We see that right in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Although the the prophet goes on to paint this hopeful picture, he starts by acknowledging the distress of the time that they were in, the time that he was writing. Verse 1 begins this way, nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Isaiah acknowledges that presently things were not rosy for the nation of Israel. And in particular, he's writing to the southern part of the nation of Israel called Judah. Uh, This is a time in history When Isaiah is writing, and there's great division and great distress. There's division within and division without. There's division within, because after the reign of Solomon, there was political factions that divided the nation into two. So it ripped Israel apart. And so there was a northern kingdom that retained the name Israel. There's a southern kingdom to which Isaiah is writing here called Judah. So there's this whole portion of Isaiah where he's writing to Judah. This is a portion of that. He's writing to the people of Judah in the southern kingdom of Israel. In addition to this political tension and division within, there's political division and tension surrounding the nation. So the situation is, is that Ahaz, king of Judah, received word that the empire of Assyria was planning to join forces with Israel, the northern kingdom, and they were actually going to come against Judah and attack them. So Ahaz is freaking out. He is vying for like political alliances. Like who should he ally himself with to help protect Judah? In response, Isaiah says this. He says, I got some good news for you and I got some bad news. That's what he says to Ahaz. Here's the good news. This alliance between the northern kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Syria will not succeed. Both Israel and Syria will actually be uh, uh, conquered by the empire of Assyria. And then he says, but I got some bad news for you too. Got some bad news. Ahaz. After conquering Israel and and Syria, the Assyrian army and then eventually the Babylonian army will actually conquer Judah. 
And so there's going to be violence. There's going to be suffering. Uh, there'll be a time of distress. But it's against this backdrop that he says, look, in the midst of the distress, here's a hope to hold on to, Judah. Here's a hope to hold on to. God has a thriving, hopeful future planned for you. This is something in the midst of the circumstances when it seems like God will never set the world right that you can hold on to and you can know that that's where he's taking things, though you can't see it yet. And we're going to see in this passage, this is not just a word for Judah. So in the same way that it's a, um, a call for hope in the midst of hardship, we're going to see in the passage that Isaiah's picture moves well beyond the restoration in Judah. And he talks about reclaiming and redeeming the goodness in the world. And so this is a passage that provides hope for you and I in the middle of circumstances that we feel hopeless about. It's something like those in Judah that we can grab onto and we can find hope this morning. Look at verses one to three, Isaiah nine verses one to three. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. In contrast to the distress and division that was currently kind of being felt by Judah, he says this, he says, there will be a day. One day there will be life. There will be health, wellness, population growth, rather than violence and death. One day, there will be joy. There will be deep abiding satisfaction in what God has done to set the world right. Uh, skip down to verses four and five. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every, war every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Isaiah pictures a future of justice. One day, the power of those who mistreat, objectify, and oppress would be broken. One day, there'll be harmony. The nations and people groups in, in conflict with each other will be reconciled to each other. Military equipment will not be needed anymore. It will be so useless, it will be used as fuel to be burned in the fire. This powerful picture of a hopeful, thriving future can be summed up in a word that we see twice in the passage. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom. Now, Shalom is translated peace in verses six and seven, which we'll see in a moment when we read verses six and seven. But there's no better English translation than peace for shalom. But those of you who are bilingual know that like one language doesn't always capture the nuance. Sometimes there's not a fantastic word to capture the nuances of another word in another language. Uh, my wife is a German speaker and sometimes we'll be talking and she's fluent in German and she'll say, there's not a great English word. You know, and she's like, this is this great German word, and it kind of captures the nuance of what we're talking about. There's not a great English word. And so uh, someone who speaks Hebrew would hear the word shalom, and they would think not only the absence of conflict, because peace communicates the absence of conflict. Shalom actually also communicates the presence of wholeness, flourishing, harmony, 
Shalom communicates the presence of wholeness where there once was brokenness, the presence of flourishing where there once was withering, the presence of harmony where there once was division. In the beginning, creation was shalom. We might describe the Garden of Eden as shalom. It was whole, flourishing, every part integrated and in harmony with every other part until it was broken by sin. Here in Isaiah 9, 1 to 7, the vision that Isaiah is poetically painting for us is he's saying God has a future where Eden will be restored and completed. It'll be shalom in creation once again. It will be whole, flourishing, and in harmony. But it's not through human progress, human programs, human politics that it will be accomplished. It's through other means. He sums it up this way, verse seven, he says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about first through a king who is God incarnate, through a king who is God incarnate. Look at Isaiah nine, verses six and seven. For to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will rule on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Though Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he gives us a pitch perfect description of Jesus, God incarnate, 100% God and 100% human. The picture that he gives us is not of merely a human king who will bring about God's plan of thriving and hope for the future. He also gives us a picture of a human king who's also God himself. So we get a pitch perfect description of Jesus, 100% human, 100% God. Take a look at verse six. In verse six, we hear that he's born as one of us. He's born as one of us. For to us, a child is born. And so he's born as a human being. Verse seven talks about him descending from the lineage of David. He comes from a human family. He is part of the family of the most famous king of Israel, David. But Isaiah also describes a king who's God. Look at verse six again. In verse six, he's called everlasting father. Only the infinite creator God could be called everlasting father. One of the most common descriptions of God throughout the Old Testament is from everlasting to everlasting. He is the only one who always was, always is, and always will be. He's the everlasting God. So it's very divine language that's used to describe this human king. Verse seven describes his reign as forever. His reign is forever. Who but God himself could reign forever? Not a finite human being. Only God himself could reign forever. And then in verse six, Isaiah comes right out and calls this king mighty God. Mighty God. And um, you should read like commentators who aren't followers of Jesus, like trying to figure out like, like, why is this human being called God? You know, and then there's all kinds of explanations. But the king who Isaiah described, the clearest explanation, is he sounds exactly like Jesus himself and the way the New Testament pictures Jesus. John chapter one, first several verses, Jesus is described as the word who was in the beginning and he was made flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. So we, we get a pitch perfect description of Jesus, the God man, 100% God, 100% human. And so it's not human programs and politics that'll bring about God's vision. Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about through a king who's God incarnate. Secondly, Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about through a king who is prince of peace. Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about through a king who's prince of peace. Uh, verse 6 calls him the prince of peace. In Hebrew, his title is Sar Shalom. Sar means like ruler, governor, administrator. Shalom is wholeness, flourishing, and harmony. So just it, it helps sometimes to sort of say, look, what are other ways that you can translate those words? So when you, when you see prince of peace, it's like ruler of wholeness, governor of flourishing, administrator of harmony, the prince of peace. This king is a powerful king, but he's also a prince of peace. Notice all the visceral images of the king exercising power in the passage. Uh, verse four, the king breaks the rod of the oppressor. Verse five, the king burns the instruments of war to usher in peace for his people. Verse six, he holds the government on his shoulders, supporting the government with his mighty power. Verse seven, he establishes and upholds a kingdom of justice. So we see like these visceral images of the power of the king. But notice too, that the king does not use his power for selfish gain. The power, the, the king uses his power to establish God's vision of shalom in his creation. Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about through a king who's God incarnate. Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about through a king who's prince of peace. And lastly, Isaiah pictures a world of shalom coming about through a worldwide kingdom movement with humble beginnings. Through a worldwide kingdom movement with humble beginnings. Now notice in the passage that Isaiah actually indicates a specific place where the rule of the Prince of Peace will begin. Uh, I'll give you a hint. Take a look at verse 1. Somebody just call it out. Where's the specific place geographically that the rule of the Prince of Peace will begin? Go ahead, call it out. In the region of what? Yep, so he said it, Galilee. Yeah, he says, in Galilee, the light will dawn. You know, in Galilee, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now that just sounds like gobbledygook, but here's the deal. Zeb Zebulun and Naphtali were tribes that earlier in the Old Testament had settled in the north of Israel. And the very same place that was later called Galilee is kind of being described. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, where those tribes settled, Galilee. What's significant about Galilee? That's Jesus' hometown. That's Jesus' neighborhood. And so when Jesus um, started his ministry, it was the region where John the Baptist was baptizing people and saying, repent, turn to God. The kingdom of God is at hand. It was the region where Jesus was walking through the desert and John pointed at him, look, there's the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was the region where Jesus started his three-year ministry. So Isaiah points to this place and he says, it's in Galilee that the light's gonna dawn. It's in Galilee that the reign of the Prince of Peace will begin. Isaiah also points to a specific time. Like he doesn't give us a date, but he points to a specific time that the reign will begin. Look at verse seven. He'll reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. 
So it's from the time that the light begins to dawn in Galilee, from the time of the beginning of Jesus's ministry. Now, I see that with confidence because the New Testament writers almost seem to go out of their way to say like, look, this is the time with the coming of Jesus. This is the time the prophet spoke of. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15, or listen to it read. Uh, Mark 1, 15. This is what Jesus says in that verse. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Mark nearly comes right out and says, like, remember that time that Isaiah spoke of? The time that from that time forward, the Prince of Peace will reign? That time is here. The king has come. And because the king has come, God is kicking off his kingdom movement to bring restoration to his world. And you say, hold on, hold on. But we look around us, we see lots of brokenness. We see lots of corruption. We see lots of injustice. If the reign of the Prince of Peace started then, then like, why don't we see um, shalom fully expressed on earth? Like, why do we still long for the brokenness to be made whole? And the answer is this, it's an unfolding plan, okay? Like, so Jesus' plan of shalom is an unfolding plan. Um, Jesus described it this way in a parable, Matthew 13. He said, it's like yeast working its way through the dough. So very slowly, like yeast working its way through the dough. The blessing that was kicked off by the beginning of the reign of the Prince of Peace Generation after generation, it slowly works its way into the brokenness of this world and it brings shalom. Jesus's ministry was a little bit like God throwing a pebble in the lake. If the lake is like the reality of this world, it's like he threw a pebble in the lake and the blessing ripples out and it, it ripples out across Israel and it ripples out beyond Israel. It rippled out across Israel as Jesus taught, as he performed miracles, as he modeled the kind of life that you and I were created to live. It rippled out at the cross as Jesus made atonement for the sins of humanity, past, present, and future. It rippled out from the empty tomb as Jesus was raised from the dead and gave us a glimpse of the future that God has planned for his people and his world. It rippled out at his ascension, when Jesus actually returned to heaven, sat down at the right hand of God, which is the place of honor, and he is, was enthroned as the ruler of creation where he now sits and rules. It rippled out when God blessed his people, all followers of Jesus, with the presence of his spirit on the day of Pentecost, living in them to guide them, to give them life. And we not only see these ripples fully expressed, in the New Testament, if we look at the passage in Isaiah, we get these little glimpses, that's where it's going. Now, remember I told you Isaiah is writing to Judah, but notice that the blessing, the movement doesn't begin in Judah. It actually, Judah is down south right here. It actually begins up here. It actually begins in Galilee, where Naphtali and Zebulun were. And so we see that that's where the light dawns, and it actually spreads to Judah. The word of encouragement to Judah was, there will come a day when shalom will spread to you. But it doesn't just spread to Judah. Isaiah indicates it has no geographical boundaries. It spreads beyond. It's a worldwide movement. He actually says in verse 7, 
of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. There'll be no end. The picture that he gives us is it's a movement that expands and expands, increases and increases until it ripples out to bless every tribe and nation and tongue. So Jesus' kingdom movement, like this pebble that's thrown in the pond, it ripples shalom across geography and down through time. And here's the cool thing. It ripples into your life and it ripples into my life. And so in the New Testament, we keep experiencing this word peace. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, but we keep experiencing the word peace. And the original followers of Jesus who were Jewish, they would have thought shalom. They wouldn't have just thought the absence of conflict. They would have thought flourishing, wholeness, harmony. And so we see these different references to peace, and we see ways that the movement of Jesus is rippling into my life and your life. Through Jesus' kingdom movement, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. Uh, Romans 5, chapter 1. Therefore, since we've been justified or made right with God through faith, we have peace with God. We have shalom with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, left to ourselves, here's what we'll do. We will either run from God or shake our fist at God. Because we know deep in ourselves that we're not who we were created to be, and we feel deeply insecure about that. So we'll, we'll either rebel against God or we'll hide from him. But God came after us in Jesus Christ. Um, on the cross, God created a situation where as we respond in faith, God mends our broken relationship. He brings wholeness, harmony, flourishing to the relationship that was marked by conflict and hiding. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Jesus's kingdom movement, we also have peace within. We have peace within. John 14, which we looked at just a number of months ago in the Jesus Continued series. John 14, verse 27. Jesus said, peace I give to you. My peace I give you. Shalom, wholeness, harmony, flourishing I give to you. There's a, there's a peace, there's a wholeness, a harmony, a flourishing that can't be accessed in our natural selves. The living presence of God who lives in us through God's Holy Spirit, as we lean into God's presence, we have access to peace, to calm the anxiety of our hearts and minds. That's beyond our natural ability. That's God's presence in us and working through us. So through Jesus' kingdom movement, we have peace with God. We have peace within. And through Jesus' kingdom movement, we have peace with others. We have peace with others. We have shalom with others. Um, one of my favorite passages is, is Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2, Paul's addressing the ethnic cultural conflict between Jews and Gentiles who are now kind of thrown together into one body. And here are these people with vastly different cultural ethnic backgrounds. And it's like, we all, our faith is in Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Lord. And like, they're just kind of thrown together into like this one people. All right, now guys, just figure it out. Like figure it out, work it out. You know, and then there's all kinds of stuff that they got to work through. And Paul says this, he says, referring to Jesus, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, our shalom, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, thus making peace. So he's ripped down the walls. His kingdom movement, his gospel, has ripped down the walls between people of vastly different cultural and ethnic groups. 
and he's bringing people together around faith in Jesus and through sharing in one spirit. And so, uh, so you and I, again, we have power through God's spirit beyond our natural ability to cross cultural and ethnic barriers and to, to, to see people as either like part of God's spiritual family with us or potentially part of God's spiritual family with us. You know, either part of his new humanity or potentially part of this one body uh, through faith in Christ centered around his spirit. So these incredible things, peace with God, peace within, peace with others, are glimpses of a greater shalom to come. One day, Jesus will return. He'll set this world right. He'll purify this world from evil and injustice. He'll reclaim and redeem the good in this world. And at that time, there'll be peace for all creation. There'll be peace for all creation. The angel's word that was announced at Christmas time is not just a naive child fantasy. Peace on earth, goodwill to men will be a reality. It'll be a reality through Jesus. Through Jesus, shalom for all creation is not naive. It's a rock solid biblical truth. I'd like to invite John and Valerie back up to the stage. And as kind of they get set to lead us in some closing songs, I want to share with you a quote that I think sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. Um, I was convicted by this quote when I was reading this book called Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. And he says this, far too often, Christians slide into a vaguely spiritualized version of one or the other major political system or party. What would happen if we were to take seriously our stated belief that Jesus Christ is already Lord of the world. And that at his name, one day, every knee would bow, confessing Jesus as the ascended and coming Lord frees us up from needing to pretend that this or that program or leader has the key to utopia if only we would elect him or her. Equally, it frees up our corporate life from the despair that comes when we realize that once again, our political systems let us down. You see what N.T. Wright says? He says, look, he says, like, when, when our trust slips, when it slips to ultimately thinking human programs and politics will bring about the world of shalom that we long for, the result is, like, we will find ourselves hopeless and in distress. He says, ultimately, those things will fail, and we'll find ourselves hopeless, we'll find ourselves sad, scared, cynical, that maybe the good in the world will never be reclaimed and redeemed. But if we remember, we are not called, we're not called as followers of Jesus to trust in programs, politicians, parties, publications, platforms, even pastors. We are called to trust in Jesus the Lord. We're called to follow him through the peaks, through the valleys, toward his vision for shalom in this world. His thriving, hopeful future for his people and for his world. John and Val are going to share with us um, a couple of songs. The first song is just a song of reflection. As you listen to the song, reflect on following Jesus through the peaks, through the valley, toward his vision for his world and his vision for his people. And then they'll lead us actually together in closing with, uh, with a number that's more familiar to us. Thank you. 
He can use my mic. There we go. Ah, here's yours. Okay, here we go. Shalom, right? When the sea is calm and all is right When I feel your favor flood my life Even in the good I'll follow you Even in the good I'll follow you When the boat is tossed upon the waves And I wonder if storms I'll follow you even in the storms I'll follow you I believe everything that you say are I believe I have seen your unchanging heart in the good things in the hardest part I believe and I will follow you. I believe and I will follow you. When I see the wicked prospering, when I feel I have no voice to sing, even in the wants of You say you are, I believe. 
Jesus Christ, my living hope. 
thank you that you are our living hope. We need a ruler to bring peace. We need a ruler of flourishing, a ruler of wholeness. God, thank you that we don't need to get discouraged when human rulers, when System, systems designed to produce flourishing fail because we know that you as Prince of Peace will never fail. So our hope and our trust is in you. Thank you for a hope that's not dormant and on a shelf, but thank you for hope that's alive. And it's alive through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Why don't you join me in thanking John and Valerie for being with us. Yeah. Just a real privilege to have them with us. Uh, unfortunately, their flight actually got bumped up a little bit because of the weather tonight. So they're going to need to jump right out of here. That's uh, not because they, we've Jersey contaminated them with being unfriendly. Uh, they love to connect with people, but they actually do need to scoot out pretty quickly. And so if they're not able to talk as much as usual, I hope you can understand that. Prayer team will be down here to my left, your right. We'd love to pray for you. Uh, John and Valerie have some of their music out in the back in the foyer. would love for you to stop by that. Check it out. Stay warm. God bless. Have a great afternoon.